This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I can get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. This is a story that needs to be told. Please, rock and roll. Want something to read? Shh. Quiet, please. Hey, folks. Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101, we will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon. Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. Hello, diggers, and welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. With me, as always, is Shelly Sorensen. Shelly, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you, Christian? Obviously, I am fantastic. That's how I start this show. Yeah, you start fantastic. And we'll go from there. And then what happens? <laughs> hey, Hey, I am going to move us in real quick here because yeah. we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to cover. And, and if we, we don't get to it, boy, uh, we're going to have to turn this into two episodes, and I really don't want to do that to the okay. diggers. <laughs> so let's uh, introduce the book that we have for this edition. Okay. The title is With a Little Help from My Friends, The Making of Sergeant Pepper, and it's by George Martin. Yes, that George Martin with uh, William Pearson, and it was put out in 1994. Yeah, and I've been talking about it a little bit on Rock Talk and uh, letting people know, and I know there's another title to it uh, called uh, Summer of Love, but it's the same book? 
Yeah, well, as far as I can tell, that's the the British version because they both came out at the same time. So there's one out there called Summer of Love, The Making of Sgt. Pepper. And this one is the American version, which is, the title starts with a little help from my friends, but it, it looks like they're the same book. Sometimes publishers do that. They, I don't know, it's like albums, you know, like uh, Nick oh, Lowe's. Uh, they're still doing it to the Beatles, I Jesus see. Jesus of yes. Cool in Britain. It, they couldn't publish it as Jesus of Cool, so they brought in, it in out America. as uh, pure pop for <laughs> now people. Yeah, right. I wonder why. That's uh, <laughs> right. Nick Lowe, but Walmart still a great album. Carry it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, let's get into this. So basically what we're going to do is the book breaks down each of the songs from Sgt. Pepper. Yes. And what Shelley and I have decided to do is twofold. One, we are going to present them in the order they were actually recorded. Because that's the way the book was written. That's good. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then at the same time, we're going to use the outtakes that uh, came in the new deluxe package of the 50th anniversary Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. So this should be interesting, folks. So yeah. prepare yourselves. You can always go find uh, the new remastered versions or the original uh, mono and stereo mixes, too. I know are still available out there. So, But let's get into it. So as we know, 1966, August 29th is uh, the last Beatles concert. Just happens to be in San Francisco, about 10 miles from us here, mm-hmm. uh, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And uh, the boys decide they are not going to do this anymore. And starting with Revolver, they kind of began to experiment in the studio, uh, adding instrumentation, doing things that would have been very difficult to do live anyway. And with Sgt. Pepper, they just go into the stratosphere of, uh, of this concept. So I believe they get back to London uh, and they sit down to work on the what are called the Sgt. Pepper sessions. And they start with a couple of songs that aren't even on Sgt. Pepper. That's right. They start with Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. So those were supposed to be on Sgt. Pepper. I never knew that. But apparently uh, Brian Epstein got uh, impatient and thought that they needed some singles out. So he put those, he pushed to put those out on a 45, yeah, back to back side. on a 45. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I don't quite understand why, but they couldn't go on the album at, then at that point. But that, you know, Sergeant Pep, I mean. Yeah, they never took singles and put them onto the albums. Mm-hmm. So they kind of kept them separate. And I, it gets confusing, especially with American versions, UK versions, and then right. all the things that came out afterwards. I mean, uh, uh, but in the end, yes, Brian and EMI decided that uh, they wanted a single. It had been seven months since the Beatles had oh, put uh, my a single God. out. And so I believe it was in February that uh, they released uh, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane as a double ace side. Yep. George Martin sees that as uh, a setting the stage for Sgt. Pepper because they really started to do some interesting experimentation. Well, they started on Revolver, but this song was um, really something that they uh, got into and did some interesting things with. One of the, you know, they did lots of different takes of it with different at different tempos, and at one point the strawberry um, fields, yes. yeah, strawberry mm-hmm. fields. John yeah. Yeah. expected George Martin and Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer, 
to put two takes together, they had two takes that were the first part was better on one take and the second part was better on the next take and he wanted them to to stick them together but the problem was they were at different tempos and different keys and different keys and and he just looked at them this was his way because he wasn't real technological himself but he just looked at them like yeah aren't yeah yeah make it happen yeah make it happen and they just they were like oh crap how are we gonna do that and they ended up using a wild piece of experimental equipment, which Martin calls a diplodocus-sized washing machine look-alike, to um, slow down the one take so that it could be connected to the to the first one. Yeah, I think it was take seven and take twenty-six that they put together. So the first thing I want to do is let's play uh, a little of take seven, which is the slower take. And then we'll come back here real quick. Okay. Strawberry Fields Forever, take seven, remix from four track, take six. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to. Strawberry All right. So now let's take the the uh, the faster tempo uh, and put it together and let the diggers see uh, the two different pieces separated. By the way, we are using this from the deluxe edition. These are the outtakes here. One, two, three. take you down cause I'm going to strawberry fields nothing is real and nothing to get hung about alright alright so now let's take the remastered version the uh, the song itself and if you put it on your cells at home at the one minute mark, you can hear the change from one take to the other. We're just going to cut a little piece here so you can hear it. it much to me. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to strawberry fields. Nothing. One thing that um, George Martin talks about in the book a lot is a lot of the technology that, even in the 90s when he was writing this book, um, that we take for granted now about the way, like now you would just do, you know, you would just put it on a computer and slow it down. What's the big deal? But they did all of this. They had to really Mm jerry-rig 
you know, ways to and figure out really ingenious ways to to make this happen. The ideas of the genius mentality, like John Lennon, he would have this crazy idea, and they would just have to try to figure out how to do it. They didn't even have Walkmans then, you know, just to to record a little snippet of a melody when they wanted to. Yeah, no, they. Uh, it's it's as similar to like the moon landing at the time. I mean, literally, you know, you got basically the handheld calculator uh, mm-hmm. running the computers to get men to the moon and home. Uh, you know, I mean, your smartphone is, you know, 10,000 times more right. powerful right. Than, than that. So, yeah, you have to think back at the age of uh, 1960s and, you know, the recording technology was uh, available to these guys. They were dealing with four tracks. That's right. Yeah. And literally, yes, you you had to splice tape and they had to splice it in these long pieces that then would have to fit together. And that's exactly what they did with Strawberry Fields. they did that all physically. Yeah. (laughs) So let's move into the second of these two songs that a lot of people say should be on Sgt. Pepper, and that's Penny Lane. Uh, Interesting thing that the two first songs here are these nostalgic looks from both John with Strawberry Fields and Paul with Penny Lane to their hometown of Liverpool. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, Penny Lane was Paul's kind of, I don't know, you know, flip side in more ways than one to John's Strawberry Fields. And they came out on the same 45. But neither of them went to number one because they were competing against each other. If they had been released separately, they would have each gone to number one, which is kind of a funny um, idea. Yeah. You were telling me before we started talking about the about the classical music on Penny Lane and how the oh, that the song, piccolo trumpet yes. yeah mm-hmm. the piccolo trumpet I've yes. never heard of some mm-hmm. that kind of instrument yeah, played by Dave Mason, who not was, of traffic. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no. Dave Mason, the piccolo trumpet player, uh, with the London Philharmonic, and basically Paul had seen him play on the uh, Brandenburg Concerto piece that was on the BBC a couple of weeks before, had and said, "Hey, what's that?" Uh, I I want to employ that into my new song. And so they hired Dave Mason to come in, sit down, and uh, he ripped it off in one take. Mm. Uh, Now, of course, Paul, not knowing classical music, uh, musicians and the expectations of them when of they come employment. into the studio. You know, yeah. uh, I know Jeff Emmerich in uh, in his book and George Martin were like astounded at just the beautiful performance that Mason had pulled off. And Paul basically gets on the intercom and says, oh, right. All right. Let's do another take. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, there was just no way it was going to be even better. So that is the one and only take uh, that was done there. So, all right, let's play a little of uh, an outtake from uh, Penny Lane. song that 
actually kind of to me uh, has a similar feeling to Penny Lane is the first now, the song, nostalgic sort of yeah uh, the first song they actually recorded for the album which was recorded in December 66 which was when I'm 64 and um, no, an old that was an old song of Paul's uh, he'd had uh, sticking around since oh, um, yeah. uh, since Hamburg but yeah yeah um, George Martin uh, it's interesting the way he describes um, this song from because you know you kind of think of it as a an upbeat you know real kind of positive view of older you know people that are older that are in love it's like a lovely little ditty yes mm-hmm. it's sixty four coming up but anyway. He said, you know, George Martin feels like Paul, you know, was it was an affectionate kind of satire of old age, but Paul still felt that that was his version, personal version of hell. Like he really never <laughs> thought he was yeah. going to be there. It was oh, a he was he's kind long of making, past it. Yeah, he was kind of making fun of it. And he, you know, how young people are, they never think that's where they're going to be. And he wasn't at all interested in a domestic life. You know, he was still a young playboy. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And it's also different than some of the other songs on most of the other songs on Sgt. Pepper because it's very firmly rooted in reality and doesn't have that kind of, you know, hippie Dreggy psychedelic vibe that yeah. some of the a lot yeah, of the that, other songs that, that Rudy Tootie sort of musical sort of thing yeah. that uh, you know the Beatles also brought as uh, inspiration. Uh, interesting. We're going to play the uh, the outtake here. You know they speed it up. Paul's voice. Uh, they did this a couple of times uh, in the album. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to create this younger version of Paul, you know, the, like an 18-year-old version of Paul when he originally wrote the song, uh, uh, yeah. which, he, which he did write for his dad. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, there, there is that in there. So let's, let's listen to When I'm 64 in the original Paul's voice before they've sped it up. Right. Take two. I get older, losing my hair Many years from now Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine If I'd been out till quarter to three Would you lock the door? All right, so Starberry Fields, Penny Lane, When I'm 64. Mm -hmm. Wow, and now comes... The, the next, big one. Yeah, the next one <laughs> that they recorded actually is kind of ironic because, you know, it's the last one on the album, and it's A Day in the Life, which they recorded, I suppose, right after Christmas in January of 1967. And the interesting thing for me that I got out of um, George Martin's description of this song was that John Lennon didn't actually really like his voice. He was always yeah, a little bit well known. He was always trying to trying to change it. He was always going to uh, Emmerich and saying, you know, can we yeah. add this? Can we do that? Can yeah. we change it? Mm-hmm. He says uh, he liked stupendous amounts of echo. And one his explanation for that is that he was used to his voice sounding echoey because he first started singing and playing the guitar on his aunt Mimi's porch. 
and the acoustics gave his voice a natural echo and he, he was used to it. So when he heard his voice back on tape, it didn't sound the same to him. Of course, it never does. But, you know, anyway, I thought that was interesting. And actually, George Martin says he loved, you can tell he was quite fond of John in this book and he misses hearing his voice and loved, loved the sound of John's voice. You know, it's not a technically, you know, fabulous acrobatic voice. No, but, but emotionally, a, there's a lot going there is, on there. And, yeah, and it's him. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, uh, he sets a, uh, a pattern of depth, and it's unaffected. It's right. It's authenticity it's pr- uh, that uh, that just shines through in pretty much everything right. that he did. Part of the genius uh, of John Lennon. Yeah, so, it mirrors his personality. I mean, that's what yeah. a voice is. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, I mean, what else can be said about this song that hasn't already been said? So let's play A Day in the Life, take one. In the life of, take one. Have the mic on the piano quite low. Just keep it in like maracas, you know. You know those old pianos. First of all, I cannot get choked. I cannot not get choked up whenever I hear Sugar Plum Fairies. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, did you hear the call out to Mal and the alarm clock that <laughs> that were used to keep the the timing straight before they added some of the instrumentation, including the orchestra that would come about three weeks later? Right, and you can hear Mal Evans even on the final take, I think, um, a little bit in the that background. Preserved for posterity. Yeah, yes. counting. He was their roadie, but he got to have, I would love to have had that job, you know. <laughs> here, Shelley, come over here and bang on this pot for us a little while. And But then they also got, you know, the symphony, well, John wanted to have uh, a symphony symphonic orchestra. orchestra uh, I'm sorry, a symphonic orgasm, I believe, oh, is, yeah. was the original <laughs> request. And George Martin knew how much 90 musicians would cost because that's the <laughs> original. You know, that's the number of musicians in a symphony orchestra. Yep, so yep. he decided 41 would do, be a little cheaper. And then they doubled and, them and quadrupled them. And they they did overdubs with them. Actually, it's Ringo who kind of comes up with the idea. And, you know, but uh, uh, I digress. Yeah, the the interesting part for me about the um, the, the symphony musicians was that uh, it really they did. Um, I don't know if it was who it was that said they wanted them to start all the instruments to start on the lowest note that they have in that their instrument is capable of playing right. and go up to the highest note that their instrument is capable of playing. And for each yeah, instrument, there's bars, a different right. range, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so George Martin had to figure out how to score that. And all he could really do was give them each a little like marking at the bar, like by 
bar, you know, 16, yeah, you, you should, should be, be at mm-hmm. a C, yeah. and by and this instrument should be at this. And it was meant to sound very messy, but, you know, he, so he had to give them signposts. And then at the end, uh, they come, they tried to, you know, figure out how to make that big sound at the end. And as you pointed out on the outtakes, they started with, originally they, they wanted to do just a, like everybody do an ohm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, after after the, the party of <laughs> yeah. the, uh, at the orchestra with the Stones and uh, some, uh, I think Mike Nesmith was yeah, there and, and all kinds uh, of people. Yeah, Marianne so. Faithful. Mary- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were all there, but what they ended the up Carnaby doing... The Carnaby Street crew for that last note was having three pianos in the room and they all had to pound down on the same chord at the same time, which was a little bit dicey to, um, you know, to, to time out. Like it had to happen exactly at the right time. And there was like six hands on, no, four hands on each piano. Yeah. Probably Mal Mal too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, George Harrison wasn't there that day. Uh, and, uh, yeah. That would have been his piano debut. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) but they, uh, they let it ring out and, uh, uh, I know Jeff Emmerich did some really interesting fader, uh, movements to kind of, as the fade would begin, um, he would rise raise the volume to capture the uh the continued uh resonance the fade yeah, yeah. so really really cool yeah all right let's yeah. move on uh yep. to you know the rocking part that's of right the, of the <laughs> album huh? the next one that they recorded which was sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band which was the song you know that they chose as the beginning of this and what kind of ostensibly makes this a concept album which is that they came up Paul had this idea for you know let's create a fictitious band and we can be the band you know we can play the parts of the band members so that was kind of the basis as we all know for yeah the, we we talk about that in yeah. episode 14 I'd love to turn you on that uh, you know Paul had had the opportunity to travel a little bit in Africa and uh, the uh, south of France and Spain in disguise. And uh, he kind of loved this idea of not being recognized after, you know, three years of this mayhem that had followed them all over the world. And so he kind of came up with this idea of being anonymous uh, as as a band. And uh, the other guys... uh, they kind of just went along with it. And, uh, you know, really, when you get down to it, it's funny. Sergeant Pepper, as a concept, is really just a beginning and an end mm-hmm. uh, in that the, the rest of the songs don't really hold some sort of concept together. Just right. the reprise and the, and the opener. And the cool thing that I like about it is that it is, you know, first of all, it's the rock band of the Beatles in 1967. Right. Uh, and that's really cool. And the yeah. second is that, you know, they knew they weren't going to tour. So this was like the next best thing. You know, they opened with, hey, here's a show. We're going to play a show for you. We're going to play some new songs for you. And at the end, they said, you know, kind of, you know, hey, hope you like the show. And (laughs) and this was great. And, uh, you know, so so it's kind of cool. Yeah. So let's play the outtake of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band.
Yeah. One thing I was interested about for Sgt. Pepper was that Paul insisted on doing his uh, the lead guitar solos, which I thought, whoa. Whoa, how do you take that something like that away from George Harrison? But uh, No, yes, so. he, yes, he did do the leads on, uh, yeah. on Sgt. Pepper. Of yeah. course, we don't get that here with uh, with this particular no, version. No, not but, with that track. Mm-hmm. But listen for it, people. Oh, yeah. That's Paul yeah. McCartney. So the next song that they recorded, and, and they recorded several in the month of February, that's for sure, was uh, Good Morning, Good Morning, which oh, uh, love that was song. Yeah. inspired by a Kellogg's Corn Flakes commercial. Yeah, John <laughs> John was writing songs from just about anywhere. Yeah. I mean, the benefit of Mr. Kite uh, is known for uh, being a poster. Yeah. You know, uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, a, p- a picture that Julian, uh, his son, had uh, painted with, about a school friend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, Good Morning, Good Morning's a, a Kellogg's uh, advertisement. Right, he uh, would often apparently listen to TV while, while writing songs and he was living a domestic life at the time yeah, he Cynthia. had mm-hmm. just had a baby mm-hmm. and um, was living in kind of an upper class suburb and George Martin looks uh, at this song as a sarcastic look at the suburban lifestyle and since John was really prone to boredom you know this was just a harbinger of yeah. times to come of yeah, his he, being kind yeah, of bored with yeah. the wife and baby and you know he was not a happy camper during yeah, the making so, of you know, and, Pepper as we and, talked uh, about the rest of the guys 14, right well i guess ringo was married at the time but yeah. um and wasn't maybe that as unhappy with it but so the other interesting thing about this song was that the the tune is simple, but the timing is a little bit, you know, unusual for a pop song, especially at that time, mm-hmm. because it changed time signatures every once in a while. And, and John didn't know how to write that down. He just, it sounded real natural to him, but George Martin was the one who had to teach it to 26 other players. So it was, uh, you know, everybody had to really count and make sure they were kind of doing the rhythm right and coming in at the right time. And he says, luckily, Ringo was such a good drummer. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and and with this outtake, you can really hear Ringo and Paul oh, lock I in. Know. I uh, love that part of the It's a great rock end. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're uh, having a little jam session at yeah, the end oh, of yeah, the outtake. Yeah, 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 yeah. Folks, hey, we highly recommend go out and get the deluxe edition. You're going to want to hear these outtakes. All right, so let's play a little of Good Morning, Good Morning. This is take eight. Good morning. Nothing to do to save his life, call his wife in. Nothing to say, but what a day. How's your boy been? Nothing to do, it's up to you. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. I, I love the little tidbit about that song and how it you know it starts out with the chicken squawk and it, and it ends up <laughs> all the with, animals farm animals yeah, yeah. and it ends up with uh, all the animals um, coming in a certain order and yeah, then, the order of, of being eaten basically yeah, is the way John yeah, wanted it's like it like an old lady who swallowed mm. a fly <laughs> so it and but that the cluck at the end they they kind of uh, segue that into the guitar tuning of the song that comes next on the album which is the reprise 
of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So it's, it, you know, they're really listening to all these sounds and trying to figure out how, you know, like just really in really well, just, creative just ways. throwing the kitchen sink at everything. Yeah. And, you know, some things work, some things don't. Uh, you know, famously the hum at the end of Day in the Life didn't work. Uh, but uh, they were willing to try anything. And that, I mean, that that is how progress is made, folks, through yep. failure. Yeah. You know, so you got to have mistakes. Otherwise, you can't go forward. Oh, uh, yay. But uh, all right, let's not get out of sequence here. No. We don't, not the reprise, because the reprise is later. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. In the middle of uh, talking about this particular song, George Martin in the book kind of revisits uh, a song on Revolver, Tomorrow Never Knows. Because, oh, yeah. So much begins with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that that's really when they started using, you know, the Indian instruments that George Harrison brought in and, you know, loops. layering vocals. Mm-hmm. And John had this idea, you know, that he wanted to sound like a Buddhist monk singing from the top <laughs> yes. of the of the yes. mountain. Yeah. And, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And by the way, that is the... The first day that uh, Jeff Emmerich had taken over as uh, engineer oh, for when they Norman recorded Smith, that tomorrow was, never knows. Th- yes, that, he's like 16, 17 years old. I, no, actually, he's like nineteen uh, yeah. by this time because he'd been working there for about three years at EMI uh, at the Abbey Road Studios. But he, <laughs> his first day as engineer, yes, John says, uh, "Make my voice sound like a Buddhist a Dalai Lama uh, from a mountaintop." <laughs> and of course, then the Leslie Speaker life hack is is created. Uh, he also close mics the drums that day. Uh, oh. Those are two giant changes uh-huh. that uh, this man creates on his first day at work. Yeah, he sounds like an amazing. Uh technician and musician and person oh amazing yeah. yes yeah like a genius a technological genius yes he was yeah. uh, he is yeah. uh so let's talk a little bit about the tape loops though yeah, and instead yeah, of was... playing the song we've played the song several times in various uh, series of uh, the rock and roll archaeology uh-huh. project but i'm going to take a, a little piece that giles martin did for uh sound breaking the pbs documentary uh-huh. uh to talk a little bit about how the tape looping was done and giles of course is who did the remixes the uh, the remastering and the remixes of this new 50th anniversary along with the outtakes and so I want to give a little props to George's son George's son Giles yes yes. one of the most recognizable loops on Tomorrow Never Knows the sound of what sounds like seagulls squawking it's actually the sound of uh, I think Paul laughing um, and speeding himself up which is this Another loop is just made up of guitars being recorded over and over again. Again, sped up and slowed down, turned backwards. And they sound like trumpets. And then, early days of sampling, Paul actually recorded um, an orchestra off a vinyl record and created a chord here. I had a bit of a problem. How were we going to use the collection of sounds? I devised a way of playing five loops at the same time. And if you brought up the faders, it was like bringing up an organ stop. Each one had a different tape loop playing all the time. So you could make your sounds as you wish. And these tape loops were running and running and running. And the Beatles and my dad and Jeff Emmerich performed on the desk, pushing up faders at the right time 
in order to create the instrument sounds they wanted for the mix. So the actual mix of Tomorrow Never Knows is a performance. It can't be recreated. Father and son, now departed father, they're talking about the tape loops that were used in Tomorrow Never Knows and, and how this was a performance in it in and of itself. Right. I thought that was so cool about using the mixing boards, if that's what they're called, yes. you know, as yes. instruments. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're a part of the, in, they're one of the instruments. And he even talked in the book about using the mixing board as a you know as an instrument and and that's why revolver was the first album uh which couldn't be performed live right. is that true yeah yeah, yeah. yeah the songs couldn't they, they, yeah they didn't play the songs live because uh, of the extra uh, instrumentation um some difficulty especially with the sound reinforcement that was available at the time right you know, the problems that they were having couldn't hear themselves the screaming fans all this other stuff but there, there was a lot of reasons uh, why but yeah none of uh, revolver was played on tour and it was interesting to find out that um that george martin previously to working with the Beatles had worked with sound effects at BBC on. Oh, he worked uh, on comedy albums. Uh, Peter Sellers. Yeah, uh, yeah, movies. yeah. The Goons yeah. and the uh, various uh, comedy acts. That that was a, a big chunk of uh, of his responsibility for Parlophone. Right, and you know he used some of the the soundtracks from the comedy acts um, in in making this record when they were looking for crowd sounds. You know, he cut pieces from mm-hmm. uh, other yep. recordings that he had worked on. Right, right. So that's pretty cool. So the next, the next song that they record was "Fixing a Hole," and that was one of the fastest tracks that they recorded because Paul knew exactly where he was going with it. Uh, it was really basically built around the harpsichord and the bass guitar. Right. And George Martin does go on rhapsodically about how what a wonderful bass uh, guitar player Paul was. Oh, just a musician in general. I yeah. Mean, I mean, Paul uh, is the musician of the Beatles. Right, right. And he, you know, it's funny because at one point he was saying, and so the greatest musician really amongst the four of them, and he decides, you know, that the thing that he's going to play is the the instrument that is the most difficult to do you know unusual things with which is the bass guitar mm-hmm. and but he obviously did and he's you know well known for his very melodic bass lines and the thing i love about the remixed songs is you can hear the bass lines that paul plays really pop out more and i love i love bass lines so it's really really cool to hear that pop you know that part pop a little bit more well that's what makes it easy for you to move your feet that's right and i like to do that let's play a little of fixing a hole take three from the outtakes yeah yeah try and make it
Yeah, it's cool hearing the harpsichord uh, really, you know, isolated like that. And yeah. speaking of a keyboard and Paul's instrument. Paul's voice, by, you know, without any effects on yeah, it. So. Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, pared down. Uh, yeah, George Martin mentions that uh, as another kind of uh, example of Paul's musicianship that uh, he... He didn't even play the piano when they first started playing together in 1962. And, and uh, from a short time later, he was playing the keyboard, the piano um, solo on Lady Madonna, which was not a really... Easy it was a thing very to do, complicated right. mm-hmm. piano yeah. track. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he even said he could play the drums technically better than Ringo, which I find hard to believe. Um, but Ringo got a very special uh, I hate taking uh, anything sound. away from Ringo. Yeah. Too much has been taken away from Ringo. Look, to me, Ringo is a clock, number one. Two, he plays left-handed on a right-handed kit which means he leads with his left hand, and that creates one of the most original-sounding drum uh, performances in any song throughout the, the, the career of the Beatles. It's, yeah. uh, without Ringo, to me, there is no Beatles. Yeah, he lent a very unique sound, definitely, to them. Gave them a very unique sound. Yes, he did. Yes, so the next uh, song that they recorded in order in February, mm-hmm. they packed a lot into that month, um, was Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. And as you mentioned... Yeah, the Victorian Circus. Yes, John got all of... Almost every single lyric actually was on that poster. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All, yeah, almost every lyric is literally on and that poster. And he it's really, amazing. really wanted to get, have a steam organ on the recording because, it, you know, so that it was sad. I believe he the, said he wanted to smell the sawdust. Ooh. Again, going back to childhood, thinking of himself uh, at the traveling circuses yeah. that would uh, this appear a... in summer of uh, in the in the UK. Right. This was a circus poster, I think, from the 1800s. Yeah, 1846, so, so I believe. So they needed to really um, yeah. find a real, even more retro kind of sound. But um, so Martin went into the, you know, the the sound effects library that he had access to to find recordings of steam organs. But they were mostly all of military marches, and he wasn't looking for a military march kind of feeling. Hmm. So what they did was they took all these different recordings of steam organs, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they cut them up into pieces. One inch pieces. And threw Mm -hmm. them up in the air. Yep, and then Jeff Emmerich had to (laughs) put them all back together. Spliced them all back together like Mm -hmm. 52-card pickup. And the end result was a chaotic mess of sound, impossible to identify it was impossible to identify the songs that they particularly had come from, but unmistakably sounded like a steam organ. And so John John thought it was fantastic. He was very happy with the, the end results. And they also used uh, other kinds of organs, the harmonium, the Hammond, the Lowry, and Mal Evans is back again to play the bass harmonica. Well, let's play Bean for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, take four. For the benefit of Mr. Kyle. Iced water. Okay, man, let's go. All the lights on. One, two. One, two, three, four. For the benefit of Mr. Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. 
Hendersons will all be there Late of Pablo Fanky's fair What a scene Over men and horses Hoops and garters Lastly through a hogshead of real fire In this way Mr. K will challenge the world Well, the middle section Which, you know, is kind of barren here But in the original song it, it all sounds to me like that band from Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, scored by Danny Elfman. Um, uh, so I can I can imagine uh, he probably loved for the being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Right, yeah. That's similar, definitely. So the next song was Lovely Rita. And um, they allowed Big George, as they called George Martin, to play the piano solo on this song. But he couldn't play the solos as fast That's as right. they wanted. Yeah, so they slowed it down. Yeah, right. he played them at a lower speed, and then they brought it up to normal speed. Um, and they also needed to make the sound of the piano sound kind of wobbly, so it would be old-fashioned. They were looking for an old-fashioned sound. And so what they were looking for was a very bad recording of a piano, which is pretty funny. So he had to... to um, kind of fool around with the recorders that they were using to record the piano solo to make it sound kind of more wobbly and old-fashioned honky-tonk. But as George Martin says, this is not his favorite song. I have always found her company a little tedious, he said about lovely Rita. Nah. Well, you know, again, uh, you think Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane and, uh, you know, what songs would you remove? I know a lot of people like to uh, talk about She's Leaving Home uh, as a, a potential uh, to, to move, uh, maybe 64 uh, as another one. But, you know, maybe it could have been uh, Lovely Rita. Who yeah. knows? Huh? So I suppose if George had, Martin had his way, uh, it would have been Lovely Rita, it sounds like. I think you're right. <clears throat> yeah. So let's play uh, Lovely Rita, take nine. My guitar still seems to go in and out like it's like the lead's wrong. I did a free girl one then, one of them you don't know what you're doing. Keep that one. Alright, let's go. One, two, three, four. It's loud dirty can work a Lovely Rita, meet a maid, nothing can come between us. When it gets dark, I tow your heart away. Standing by a parking meter, when I caught a glimpse of Rita, filling in the ticket in All right, first, I absolutely love hearing all the talk in the studio once they hit the take button. Yeah. I'm so glad we got to hear some of that. Now, I got a question. What the hell is being said there uh, as they start the song? I don't know. It sounds like Latin to me, like somebody's... I don't know. And Diggers, if anybody knows what that is, please send it to us and, and let us know. Somebody's being silly, I say. Right. So... Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Oh. That's the next one. LSD. Not really. But we know it's not really about LSD. It's a lot more about Lewis Carroll. Yeah. 
uh, one funny little story that uh, Mr. Martin tells about uh, where he's talking about how everybody, you know, because they didn't have easy ways to kind of re like record their ideas when they weren't in the studio. So a lot of everybody had to come in at studio time and wait around. Uh, sometimes there wasn't anything for people to do. Yeah, especially um, Ringo. Yeah, the technicians and the musicians. And so uh, Ringo's biggest memory, apparently, of the recording sessions around this album were that he learned to play chess. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. But um, George Martin calls him an important sounding board. He was critical, had a critical ear, and people listened to him, and they noticed what he said. So he had a lot of good ideas. Yeah, he had, he also had an unusual way of expressing himself, which created other people to go, hmm, that's an interesting way yeah, to look at it. Yeah, I love the um, beginning instrumental on this album, which is the Lowry organ for that um, little intro. And that was the one, you know, they, they were using yeah, a Hammond. Yeah, played by Paul, if I remember right. Pardon me? Played by Paul, if oh, I remember yeah, right. Oh, yeah, probably. The Hammond was a very popular organ in those days because it was so versatile. But they were looking for a, this kind of quavering tone, this quavering tone. And the Lowry was smaller and simpler and more like a modern-day synthesizer. So, And also they could get decay on the Lowry, which, was, which means, you know, you play the note and it fades away, whereas the Hammond, you know, as long as you're touching the key, the, oh, the note sustains. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then he thinks that the pairing of that uh, Lowry organ part with the with the monotonous vocal that John does is childlike, memorized, yeah. Yeah. mesmerizing. Yeah, like it. a child's rhyme, which yeah. works well with the imagery. Uh, makes sense. And then you have the middle section, which is a completely different tempo with a different time yeah, major, signature. Major key also changes. So it goes mm -hmm. from three four to four four, mm -hmm. and then they speed it up the vocals. Yep. They, sp they recorded them at a lower speed and sped it back up so the vocals sound kind of thinner and higher and they're in the correct key, but they have this kind of Mickey Mouse quality to them. Yeah, dreamy quality, kind of, you know, uh, as I like to think, once the girl with kaleidoscope eyes shows up, we move into this dream world. Mm -hmm. So let's play Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, take one. Take one. Hello? Hello. Oh, I might as well have that recording there as well. It doesn't go on the tape. Does it? Only on our cans. Oh, well. It'll sound nice. Direct injection. Once again, to talk about the you know working Beatles there in the studio that we get an ear into uh, here. Uh, it, I, I love everybody's like screwing off, and then boy, the second Paul hits those notes. I know they just come right in. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. 
They're they're definitely working, even though they're playing around. Well, remember this: uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and A Day in the Life both get banned in the UK on the BBC. And uh, there are some copies of Sgt. Pepper without both songs on it uh, out there. So, oh my God. pretty crazy, huh? Oh so, oh my God. <sighs> There, but that's know. okay because it's getting better all the time, right? That's right. <laughs> hey, how's that for a uh, transition? That was a cool huh? segue. How did you know that was our next song? Well, getting better all the time. Actually, another type of keyboard instrument comes to play in this song, which is called a pianet, um, mm. which was very popular. I looked it up on Wikipedia Good for during you. a certain uh, time period, which I can't remember. You I did the research, but I didn't yes. take very good notes. Um, but it's a cross between a harpsichord and an electric piano. And he likens it to the cheapest Casio electric keyboard today. Is he 20, being George Martin, of course. Yes, mm-hmm. 20 times more sophisticated than the pianet. <laughs> so, uh, but it's basically a small, a very small piano that the strings that make the sound that the keys hit are underneath the keys instead of oh, behind them. Uh-huh. So it made it a, a compact kind of instrument. And and George Martin actually played Hence it. Hence the pianet. He played the pianet, small. but he made noise the noises by hitting the strings directly rather than using the keys to hit the strings. Oh, so he's again. really experimenting. Yes. Yeah. And then during the recording of this song, John took some LSD. He thought he had taken uppers but somebody gave him LSD instead. Oops. And George Martin didn't that could realize be a it. Yeah. He didn't realize it. And apparently they didn't all they didn't ever take drugs when they came to record. They no, were very this serious was work. about yes, it. Yeah. Of course. Uh, so this was very As unusual. everybody should. Kids, just yes. so you know, hey, uh, you know, drugs, uh, you do, do your thing, what you want to do your thing. But when you Not go to work, work, you go to work. Don't take LSD and go to work. That's no. a major thing. No, yeah. Not unless you really want to make a statement. Yeah. Not unless you really want to. Uh, that's what I thought you were going to say. So apparently John started looking all kind of weird and peaked and darting yes. eyes freak and out. Yes, freaking out, you know? Mm-hmm. And George Martin saw he was having some trouble and said, well, what's what's going on? What's wrong? He said, I'm just not feeling very well. I, I, went, I need to go outside and get some air. But they couldn't leave the Apple building in the middle of the day because it was basically under siege yeah, by, by fans. The fans. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, let's go up to the roof, still not knowing that John was on LSD, and get some air up there. And uh, Paul and George... Harrison heard about that. Somebody said, where's John? He's up on the roof. And they're like, oh, shit. They knew he had taken <laughs> LSD yeah. and they ran yeah. up. Afraid uh, thinking, that uh, what he might do. Yeah, yes. thinking he was going to think he could fly and All was right. going to fly off the roof. Yeah. So yeah. Um, no, I think that's just a Dragnet uh, episode, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so then, you know, the great example of John and Paul working can't together get no worse, right? was, yeah, on this song where Paul was at his kind of sugar candy most, right, which is what right. George Martin, honey sugar candy yeah. most, and John would always be there to add the counterbalance. And this is uh, one example, you know, it's, it's a great, better. a great song. I'm all that, optimistic. Yes. And yes. John's coming and going, yeah, it, it couldn't get any worse than, it's, than it is right now. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that he he came up with that actually. He heard them singing the song and walked through the doors, not ever having heard the song before. Walked through the doors and just threw that in. It just came very naturally to, to John. him. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let's play <laughs> "Getting Better" take one. This is just an instrumental. Just getting better, take one. Sing it, you know, uh, I got it admitting and get and all that properly. If you can think, you know. Yeah. I'll just say one, two, because it can always be cut out. I just want to say that you get that muscular sound, and especially with these remixed versions, uh, you know, the bass is uh, deep within your uh, your, your body. gut, and, yeah. uh, you know, you, you can really kind of feel that. So, um, I, and oh, I mean, man, it just it's so nice to hear some of this stuff. Yeah, it really is. It's It was really fun to read this book, and you know, I thought it maybe it was going to be too technical for me because I've never been in a recording studio before. But I, I found all of the information about all the different, you know, instruments that were used and how they put it all together to be really interesting. And also his personal kind of remembrances of them from his own, you know, special point of view. So for the just that, it's worth reading. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, the next song they recorded was Within You and Without You. And um, George Martin has to talk a little bit about, you know, George Harrison and how he has some regrets about not helping having helped George as much with his songwriting as he could have but the way he says is that you know the fact that John and Paul uh, really knew what they were doing and were the you know kind of characters their characters were such that they well, they dominated the sound, it, yes. you know, and they mm-hmm. were a pair. Yeah, and George was the quiet one. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> and George Martin, you know, knew, you know, where the, you know, where it was going and what was going to really get sold. Um, but he does say that the first song that Harrison brought him for this album was "It's Only a Northern Song." Oh yes, um, but he didn't think it was quite right Neither for Sergeant Pepper, yeah. and that you know, actually, in the past, he hadn't been as really impressed with George Harrison's writing abilities as he was of John and Paul's. So, you know, but clearly George Harrison, you know, turned out to be an amazing songwriter. And the thing that he really, what George Martin says about this album is that, that I thought was interesting was that the, the solo, what he calls there were several solo recordings on this record that really didn't use very many of the other Beatles, you know, like Paul's When I'm 64 and John's uh, 
and blanking on which one really specifically John's solo songs, but this was George's. Oh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Yeah. Uh, good morning, good morning. You know, obviously, uh, A Day in the Life are uh, his three big pieces for Sgt. Pepper. Right. Uh, and then if you want to, you know, throw in Strawberry Fields um, as well. Yeah. George, this song, Within You, Without You, was really a solo song for George. The mm-hmm. other Beatles didn't really play on it no. and or sing it on it. Indian and, musicians, and then yeah. uh, George Martin brought in some string players to add on top of right. it. Right, and, and this was really an Indian uh, song, unlike, you know, he had brought Indian musicians and instruments on other songs previously, but yeah, this Yeah, it was one, a reverse. It was a reverse, as right. opposed to uh, kind of adding Indian themes to a Western music. It, it was uh, exactly the opposite. It was right. a very Indian-oriented he modeled this on a, on a f- Western music on top yeah. of it. He he modeled it the song on a specific form of Hindustani North Indian classical music, which is one of the most ancient forms of music in the world. So George Martin says it was the instrumentation and not the melody that made it sound Indian because in this kind of music the instruments follow the vocal and there's no harmony really. The, in, the instruments are singing the same melody as the vocalist is singing. And then, yeah, he had to bring in Western musicians. He wanted to add the Western strings to the, to the song to kind of make it not just Indian, but to make it uniquely, you know, a hybrid. So, you know, I, it was really hard to get the in, uh, European string players to mimic the, in, the Indian instruments because yeah, they're so slidey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, also, cool fact is this was one of Jeff Emmerich's favorite recordings on the album. Well, I'll tell you, I played a little secret on you. While you were explaining all that, I played Within You, Without You, mm. Underneath. Yeah, it was instrumentation, so it seemed to fit perfectly. Yeah, it was really, that's a really cool song. And um, it was George Harrison's idea to dub some laughter at the end of the song because he didn't want to come off as being too serious. Yeah, right. right. Mm -hmm. And um, George Martin also said that even though George Harrison wasn't real powerful in the group, he was influential. And the fact, one of the examples of that was the fact that they all followed him to India. Yes, you know? they did. Mm-hmm. And he just was himself. He had these ideas mm-hmm. and, you know. Studied with the Maharishi. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. The next song that they recorded was She's Leaving Home. And this oh. is actually an example of one of them that really is not... Um, a true Beatles song because yeah, a couple um, of reasons for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Paul wanted um, usually this, this was not recorded at uh, EMI, right? Some of it wasn't. So what happened was Paul had this idea for this song that he wanted to do, and he wanted orchestra, you know, harps, uh, harp and strings on the song. But George Martin wasn't available exactly when Paul wanted to record it. So because he was doing a really another, mostly he was dedicated to the Beatles, but he did have other clients. And one of them was Scylla Black. They had a big recording session. He couldn't leave it. And so Paul went out and picked another guy to score the um, classical instruments, which hurt George Martin's feelings. (laughs) Because, you know, he had arranged all of the Beatles scores. 
and thought Paul was just being too impatient, but Paul just wanted to get out of his head and down, you know, on tape. George Martin ended up not really like, you know, he thought Mike Leander, who was the, who scored the harp and strings was, uh, you know, adequate, but it's not the way he would have done it. He well, of course not. The harp part was too tinkly and the strings were too lush and he I really... I think he's being a little too sensitive. Yeah, and he, he, he kind of kept Maybe his... like the girl in the story, I don't know. Hmm. Hmm, hmm yes. You know? <laughs> Kaleidoscope. Yes. So, but he, uh, he also says that he thought that this is one of Paul's greatest songs ever and that the counterpoint of the voices of beautiful Paul cinematic, and John's uh, voices is, is just beautiful and magical. Oh, I love the story. It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful moment in time. It's captured in the imagery that uh, immediately comes to your head is, is perfect. You know, I think of that song in 1967 and, you know, the summer of love and how many young girls listened to that and said, right, that's it. I'm out of here. And they're all old ladies in the hate ashbury now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Around, sitting on the exactly. sidewalk. <laughs> so here's a little of She's Leaving Home, take one. the harp uh, plain as day there that's a right tinkly of, tinkly yeah a lot of i kind of uh, again I, I just go back to the the cinema uh mm-hmm. metaphor and uh it just it seems to fit in everything about that song yes so the next song is a little plainer yeah we're getting close to the end yeah, here yeah, huh? so got, this was one of the last songs recorded then. yep with a little help from my friends uh, John and Paul wrote it, of course, especially for Ringo. As always, yes. The working Ringo title always was, had a song uh, on the album. That's right. The working title was The Bad Finger Boogie, which I thought was funny. Because hey. it doesn't seem anything like a boogie to me. So um, since, you know, R- Ringo was the Billy Shears character, they kind of went from the first song into this song of him singing about being a character in this supposed band or show that they're putting on for the album. I like the story that George Martin tells about how he felt like Ringo had never forgiven George Martin for not allowing him <laughs> yeah. to play on oh, yeah. the first Beatles recording session in yes, 1962. Ringo continued to give George Martin crap about yeah. that forever. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they George Martin and the Beatles both fired Pete Best at the same time but didn't know about it, and Martin had already hired somebody yes you know and they couldn't and then the Beatles are all like look we have our drummer here's Ringo and he's like no I already told this guy I was paying him for the session so we can't do that that's not you know that's not nice so um yeah poor sad eyes Ringo walked off to the corner but he he talks about to play on this song Ringo's um drum style and how he gets a unique sound and a looser deeper sound Mm -hmm. than any other drummer 
and he has a unique feel for a song. So his timing might fluctuate, but it does it in the right place at the right time and, you know, moves the mood of the song along. And uh, he also said something I never knew, that he thought that Ringo was a great tom-tom player, and especially on the recording A Day in the Life, which we didn't talk about, but that's... He thinks Huge. that's probably his best performance on the album or anywhere I, in the I, I, recordings it, it, he did for the Beatles. Yes, I, I completely agree. I mean, that makes the song I'm just have to go so back special. And listen with that uh, those were dubbed later on, and Ringo did not want to do them. Uh, oh. He never mm-hmm. liked to be a flashy drummer, but they're just so loping in their feel. It's just they're absolutely perfect. It's like it's their hooks in themselves. It's it's just. One of one of my favorite pieces. Oh, I'm going to uh, go back of, and uh, listen to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's play a little of with a little help from my friends from the outtakes. <laughs> the karaoke version we could we could sing all yes we could all sing that that one yeah yeah let's do it now no let's not um well you know Ringo had a hard time trying to hit that last note yeah all the guys got around him at the end of the night it was really late yeah and uh, they really encouraged him and sure enough he did it we got there speaking of (laughs) we've gotten to the last song we did and album. this was, was the recorded, last song that they order. recorded yes um and they wanted to make uh the reprise of sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band even more like a live performance up tempo and they'd never yeah, I think done this was this an before. idea from neil aspinall really right. yeah yeah mm-hmm. they never did this before i mean not too many people do make a second recording of the same song on the same album. But they did this one in one overnight session of 11 hours, had the biggest studio at Abbey Road, which helped mm, with a, a good, you know, as a good environment for a live quality sound because it was a bigger room. Yeah. And they recorded the whole song on one four track tape, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, it's it's the Beatles it's as a, a rock live band. Sound. Yeah. It's a live sound. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for the first time, they recorded the bass guitar through a direct injection box plug directly from his Mm -hmm. guitar into the recording board. And the funny thing is John wanted that like the way it sounded and he wanted it done with his voice. But George Martin told him he'd have to have (laughs) surgery. Right, to plug it into the voice box. But it is a rockin' version, for sure, of that song. Well, let's play the last song that was recorded for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band Reprise. Okay. 
Keep the bass drum loud. Keep the bass drum loud. Bop! Yeah! Oh, is that what you're doing? Yeah, I know, yeah. It's it's Ringo. It's because you're listening to me singing. I'll stop singing, but, you know. Okay. Bam, 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 bam. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We thought you would enjoy the show. Okay. <laughs> we made it. We made it. To Unbelievable. The end. And yes, folks, this one's going long, but it is worth every minute, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure it is. Wow. And now that they've done recording all of the songs and the show is In the is order over, we presented to you today. That's right. George Martin now needs to decide what the running order on the album is going to be. Mm-hmm. So he has, you know, his normal, his kind of usual decision-making process, which is make side one strong, always go out on a side strongly, placing weaker material towards the end, but going out with a bang. So yeah. that's his kind of Bible for how to do this. So Sergeant Pepper has to go first because it sets up the concept. Yeah. Of two the sides, album. two two sides. Remember, That's it's right. not we like a CD sides. these so days. So the first so. side, Sergeant Pepper, and then a little help from my friends has to go next because uh, the first song has introduced Billy Shears, and they've decided Billy Shears is Ringo. So Ringo is singing this song as Billy Shears, Correct. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he decided to put a strong song because it's the first side. So he put Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Great choice. And it's a complete change of musical color from a little help from my friends. So it's showing some uh, variety. And then he's putting what he thinks is the some of the songs that are least interesting, but for the Beatles, that's pretty amazing which are fixing a hole, getting better all the time, and she's leaving home, which is lovely, but kind of downbeat. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't want to start or end with that one. And then going out with a bang on the first side, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Right, right. So side two. Side uh, two! Side two, which is he had to decide where to put within you without you, and it didn't really fit anywhere. (laughs) So. He decided it couldn't end a side, oh. so it had to start a side. Yes. And the laughter at the end, which George Harrison added, made it okay to lead into When I'm 64, which is a little bit more, you know, humorous. Yes, and, the Rudy Tootie Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he put Lovely Rita into the middle because it's not his favorite one. Lovely Rita, <laughs> meet a maid. That's right. right. And then Good Morning that has the chicken squawk at the end of it, which leads nicely into the guitar tuning of the 
of second the reprise, version right. mm-hmm. of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely mm-hmm. Hearts Club Band. Mm-hmm. So they all decided that the chicken squawk sounded a lot like it was on the same note what? as the as the guitar strings tuning up for that song. Yep. And so that really should have gone last, but no. they could not what are you have do that final chord that at the song. end of A Day in the Life as anything but the last note of the entire album. So the that's final why statement. they had to put that at the end. Well, and that's the story. And, uh, you know, it seems to me uh, like genius. It's, uh, you know, an, uh, like I said, an opening and beginning of a rock band, of a rock show there. You've got uh, these various uh, vignettes throughout, which kind of create this sort of a of an illusion of uh, of a concept of some form uh and then you lay the gauntlet down to every other musician in the world right uh in the pop world uh with a day in the life which still uh as i said uh, it i can listen to it a, a million times and it still gives me chills the second i hear sugar plum fairies yeah well, what do you awesome. think of the book? Oh, I thought it was really fascinating, and it's not a not a long read. It is out of print, people. Unfortunately, I bought my copy, a uh, nice copy on Amazon, uh, but you know it's not in print, so you're going to pay a little bit more for it. But if you want to read it, there are some copies out there, or find it at your public library. Yes, except for we at the San Francisco Public Library only have one copy and it's in pretty poor condition so you gotta read it while you can it's about to fall apart i'm really surprised they didn't reissue the book since it's the 50th anniversary i i kind of thought that they would yeah i'm um, surprised about that at least Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but especially with george martin's passing here uh within the last year it's yeah uh, i think it was a a a marketing mistake i agree Yeah. Maybe they'll listen to this podcast and uh, assume that uh, perhaps it's not too late. That's right. Maybe they'll decide to bring it back. Well, Shelly, again, great, great takes on uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I'm glad we could do this today. I think the fans are really going to enjoy this episode. Yeah, I learned so much. All right. Well, until next time, the Rock and Roll Librarian signs off. Keep up the rocking and the reading. That's right. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit 
rnrap.com for more information.